Good morning again. Welcome to Prairie View Christian Church. Thanks for being here with us today. We are getting closer to the conclusion of our Royal Failures sermon series, having spent most of last week in the northern kingdom of Israel. After years and years and years of wicked kings, Israel fell to the nation of Assyria. The people of Samaria, Israel's capital city, were exiled. And at the end of the day, if you had to pinpoint one specific reason why this happened, why God judged Israel in this way, the answer is one word. Idolatry. The northern kingdom gave their trust, loyalty, and worship to false and lifeless gods who didn't deserve it, rather than the true living God who did. Idolatry is the ultimate act of injustice and rebellion. It's failing to worship the God who created you. And as we discussed last week, the sin of idolatry didn't stay there. It lives on today in us. Our only hope of avoiding God's judgment is to give our trust, our loyalty, and our worship to his son, Jesus Christ. But while all that chaos took place up north, how were things going down south? Well, while Judah was by no means perfect, generally speaking, their situation was better than Israel's. More kings did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, less did what was evil. There were also fewer kings in Judah who reigned for longer periods of time. The throne was not such a revolving door, so the nation was more stable overall. But by the time we get to about 695 B.C., some 30 years after the events of last week's sermon, Judah gets their own wicked and infamous, though also conflicted and complex, royal failure. That man's name is Manasseh. So open your Bibles to 2 Kings 21. Feel free to follow along here and at home as well. But before we go further, let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've given to us. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you that it is March 2021 and we are having an in-person worship service. Uh, Lord, I pray that we have learned not to take this for granted. Uh, Thank you for the improvement that's happened, especially over the past couple months. We pray that would continue. And Lord, as we approach, hopefully, the light at the end of the tunnel, uh, remind us that while there are so many people, so many things to praise you for, uh, whether it's scientists and doctors and vaccinations and public health officials and all kinds of stuff like that, uh, Lord, we praise and worship you. We thank you for sustaining us and preserving us through this as a church. And Lord, I pray that our worship today would be honoring to you, uh, that what we say and what we do here would bring you glory, would encourage and challenge and uplift and teach us, and that we would leave here this morning a little bit more like your son Jesus, a little more in awe of who you are and what you've done, 
and a little more ready and eager to tell the world who you are and what you've done. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We thank you. We ask this all in your son's name. Amen. Well, as we mentioned a moment ago, there were some genuinely good kings in the nation of Judah. Men like Asa, Jehoshaphat, Jehoash, Amaziah, Azariah, and Jotham all took God's law seriously. They took their responsibilities to God's people seriously. Now, these kings all had their respective issues, but they made earnest efforts to do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Another one of these good kings was a man named Hezekiah, Manasseh's father. Hezekiah was a strong opponent of the idolatry in Judah, introduced by men like Solomon and Rehoboam years earlier. He was a strong opponent of the sin that led Israel up north into exile and didn't want to see the same thing happen to Judah down south. And unlike all the other good kings before him, Hezekiah went all the way in his war on idols. He removed high places. He demolished pillars. He cut down statues. Hezekiah finally obliterated idolatry in Judah once and for all. Or so he thought. 2 Kings 21, starting in verse 1. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. That's the longest reign of any king in Judah. His mother's name was Hephzibah. And Manasseh did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed. And he erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah, as Ahab, another royal failure, king of Israel, had done, and worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem will I put my name. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his son as an offering, and used fortune-telling and omens, and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And the carved image of Asherah that he had made, he set in the house of which the Lord said to David and to Solomon, his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will not cause the feet of Israel to wander any more out of the land that I gave to their fathers, if only they will be careful to do according to all that I have commanded them and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. But they did not listen. And Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done, whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. So Hezekiah's son Manasseh comes along, and he is just about as horrible as you can imagine. He went out of his way to rebuild the high places. 
He didn't just fail to worship God. He actively desecrated God's temple. He brutally and barbarically sacrificed his own son. And while it isn't recorded in the Bible, some traditions say that the prophet Isaiah was sawed in two under Manasseh's watch. The man was a monster. There is absolutely no trace of anything even resembling a redeeming quality in this man. Manasseh ranks high on the list of royal failures, not just in Judah, but he gives the evil kings up north a run for their money as well. Judah has not had a lot of wicked kings over the years, but Manasseh, he's making up for lost time. And based on what we read last week, what happened in Israel, the fall of Samaria, the exile, we shouldn't be surprised with how God responds. Second Kings 21, verse 10. And the Lord said by his servants, the prophets, because Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these abominations and has done things more evil than all that the Amorites did who were before him and has made Judah also to sin with his idols. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Behold, I am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plumb line of the house of Ahab. And I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. And I will forsake the remnant of my heritage and give them into the hand of their enemies And they shall become a prey and a spoil to all their enemies, because they have done what is evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came out of Egypt, even to this day. Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another. Besides the sin that he made Judah to sin so that they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, the rest of the acts of Manasseh and all that he did and the sins that he committed, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And Manasseh slept with his fathers and was buried in the garden of his house, in the garden of Uzzah, and Ammon, his son, reigned in his place. In short, what happened to Israel is going to happen to Judah, too. So a man like Manasseh is clearly beyond redemption. End of story, right? Well, not exactly. Before you judge Manasseh too quickly, you've got to hear both sides. Look again at verse 17, a verse that's easy to skip over. It mentions the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah. First and second chronicles are often ignored books of the Bible. It starts with a massive list of names that can make even the most sincere Bible student's heart faint. And as a sort of companion to first and second Kings, first and second chronicles just feels downright repetitive. But every once in a while, first and second chronicles will include details that are absent from 1st and 2nd Kings. 
the story will be told from a different angle. You'll get a fuller picture of what happened. In some cases, that additional information is relatively inconsequential. But in the case of Manasseh, that additional information drastically changes how we think of him. So flip over, 2 Chronicles 33, starting in verse 10. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. Sounds about right, based on what we read in 2 Kings. Therefore, the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria, who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. And when Manasseh was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him, and God was moved by Manasseh's entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Afterward, he built an outer wall for the city of David, west of Gihon, in the valley, and for the entrance into the fish gate, and carried it around Ophel and raised it to a very great height. He also put commanders of the army in all the fortified cities in Judah. Sounds good. Good kingly initiatives. But verse 15 is what's really important. And Manasseh took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord and all the altars that he had built on the mountain of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem, and he threw them outside of the city. He also restored the altar of the Lord and offered on it sacrifices of peace offerings and of thanksgiving. And he commanded Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. Two words make all the difference in the world for how we understand this man. Those two words are Manasseh repents. Manasseh repents. And based on what we read in these verses, Manasseh's repentance is authentic. It has all the standard markers of true repentance. In a moment of desperation, Manasseh recognizes and grieves his sin. He seeks cleansing from God. He displays a new desire and love for God. And he ultimately changes his actions in meaningful ways. It all checks out. It's all legitimate. But the most obvious evidence for the legitimacy of Manasseh's repentance is how God responds to it. Verse 13, God was moved by Manasseh's entreaty and heard his plea. At the end of the day, God is the best evaluator of real repentance. And he accepts Manassas. So reading this additional passage from Second Chronicles tells us that while Manasseh really was a royal failure, perhaps he didn't stay that way forever. Those two words, Manasseh repents, make all the difference in the world.
So what do we learn from the conflicted and complex story of Manasseh? Well, I think we've got at least three main lessons. First, Manasseh's story teaches us something about sin. More specifically, it teaches us about sin's resilience. Once idolatry was introduced in Judah, it never truly seemed to go away, did it? Like a weed with deep, invasive roots, that sin just kept coming back. One of the repeated phrases you read about Judah, even during all those seasons with good kings, goes something like this. 1 Kings chapter 15, verse 9, during the reign of Asa. But the high places were not taken away. 1 Kings 22, verse 43, during the reign of Jehoshaphat. The people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. 2 Kings 14, verse 4, during the reign of Amaziah. But the high places were not removed. And look again at 2 Chronicles 33, verse 17. Immediately after Manasseh throws the high places out of town, we read, Nevertheless, the people still sacrificed at the high places, but only to the Lord their God. Sadly, Manasseh's individual repentance did not lead to a national revival in Judah. The people were still strangely, even unexplainably, attracted to those high places. As we mentioned earlier, Hezekiah, Manasseh's father, took the high places down only for Manasseh to rebuild them bigger and better than ever. And then Manasseh repented of his sin and threw the idols out of town only for his son, Ammon, to pick the sin right back up. It appears that the sin resides not just in the high places. The sin resides in the heart. Sin is resilient. Sin is enduring. Sin is tough. That's why the Apostle Paul tells believers in Colossians 3 verse 5 to put it to death. And once you do that, don't let up. Keep your foot on sin's throat, because as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. As people justified by Jesus' broken body and shed blood, as people indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we really can and we really should resist and even overcome sin knowing that it has no dominion over us anymore. But we also know that our battle against sin never really ends until we die or until Christ returns. Sin is resilient. So don't flirt with it. Don't toy with it. Don't give it safe harbor. Put it to death. Be vigilant. Second lesson that Manasseh's story teaches us is about repentance. As we said earlier, the biblical marks of genuine repentance are 
recognition and grief over sin, seeking cleansing from God, displaying a new desire and love for God, and then where the rubber meets the road, changed action. Repentance is not just feeling bad, guilty, regretful, embarrassed, or a little bit sorry that we got caught. Repentance is a spirit-empowered change of mind, heart, and will that comes about when we see the sheer ugliness of our sin set next to the pure holiness of God. But this story also gives us a hard truth about repentance, and that's this. While repentant sinners can be reconciled to God, and that is truly something to rejoice over, Repentance doesn't undo everything. Manasseh's sin did massive damage. To the point that even after his repentance, he still bore some blame for Judah's eventual judgment. Though God forgave Manasseh's sins in the eternal sense, there would still be practical, worldly consequences to play out. Going back to our first point, that's another example of sin's resilience. Nevertheless, we repent of our sin because, and this is lesson number three, Manasseh's story reminds us that God is abundantly merciful to sinners. At one time, Manasseh was the worst of the worst. A royal failure if there ever was one. And guess what? God forgave him. God accepted Manasseh's repentance. Paul could relate. In 1 Timothy 1, Paul recalls who he was before he met the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. A blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent... Ignorant and unbelief, the man who held people's coats while the first Christian martyr was stoned. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 1 verse 15 that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. In Paul's mind, he was worse than Manasseh. But guess what? God forgave him. God accepted Paul's repentance. And if God can forgive Manasseh, and if God can forgive Paul, then God can forgive you. 1 John 1, 8 and 9 says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How is that possible? Verse 7 says, the blood of Jesus, his son. So sin really is bad. It's resilient. And repentance really is hard. And it doesn't undo everything. But we repent of our sin, knowing that God is abundantly merciful to sinners. Even after we believe, sin will still trip us up. When we think we've mastered it, 
when we let our guard down, it will rear its ugly head. When we think we've finally gotten rid of one weed, another can pop up somewhere else. So we might as well get used to the hard work of repentance. As Martin Luther once wrote, the entire life of believers is one of repentance. Repent is not a dirty, harsh, fire and brimstone word. It's a gift to believers for the sake of our healing, our maturity, and our ongoing relationship with God. So we bring our sin to God and repent of it because we know that he is abundantly merciful. As David writes after his most catastrophic sin in Psalm 51, verse 17, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So Manasseh is certainly a conflicted and complex figure, isn't he? In some ways, he was the worst king of this entire sermon series. But in other ways, he was the best. Why? Those two words that make all the difference in the world. Manasseh repented. Capable and guilty of great sin. But forgiven and reconciled to God. Conflicted and complex, Manasseh certainly has a complicated legacy. But in a sense, isn't the same true of us? Capable and guilty of great sin, but forgiven and reconciled to God. If God can forgive Manasseh, he can forgive you. So recognize the power of sin. Repent and leave it behind. And turn in faith to the God who is merciful and gracious to sinners. Through the broken body and shed blood of the crucified and risen Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time. Thank you for this portion of your word. Thank you that you are the true and best evaluator of real repentance. Thank you that you are more gracious and more merciful than we are. Thank you that you are kind, merciful, generous to sinners. And that becomes most clear through the offering of your son Jesus, which we're about to think of and read about at Easter. Lord, thank you that while sin does and will and has trip us up, even after we come to know you, even after we believe, even after we have the gift of the Holy Spirit, Lord, thank you that you have empowered us and enabled us to really, truly leave sin behind. But at the same time, we know that We will never be truly clean of sin, never truly be free of it until we stand in your presence. And so, Lord, give us the strength, the humility, the knowledge to repent when we need to, knowing that you are gracious and just 
to forgive us our sins. Lord, thank you again for this morning. Thank you for these people. Thank you for this time that we've had together. I pray that we would take these lessons, apply them to ourselves, apply them to others, and do it for your glory. We love you. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.